0: Ever wondered what powers the world of your favorite superheroes? Dive into understanding superhero comic books, the definitive guide that unravels the mystery. It plunges into the captivating world of spandex, superpowers, and the masterminds who conceive them. Trace the origins and evolution of superhero comics, fueled by influences from Bela Lugosi's enigmatic charm, Errol Flynn's daring exploits, and the early mesmerizing magicians. Witness Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, and more as they navigate societal shifts, reflecting our world within their epic tales. By Alex Grand's Understanding Superhero Comic Books, available now.
1: Welcome back to Part 2 of the Carol Tyler Interview. Let's continue.
2: So I, I wanted to before we get to women's comics, I want to ask just a few things on on weirdo about the end of it. What was what was happening there at the end? Like it was, I mean, it was such a, a a great moment in comics, and with Elaine, it was bringing in all of these women artists. I mean, it's a, it was yeah. a a huge moment. What was the downfall? Was, was it just not getting enough, not, not enough readers? Or what, what was closing? Or were, were there personality clashes? Or what was, what was bringing it to an end?
0: I think, no, I don't think it was personality. I think, you know, you had your East Coast, West Coast thing going for a while there. Raw Magazine and Weirdo over here. And by then, Bijou and Arcade and all those things were winding down, pretty much gone. And then the Crumbs moved to France. That changed things a little bit. That was, a, that was like a kind of an Indra era when they left. Head shops closed. A lot of places where you'd go get these things would closed, head closed. And they started start to go to bookstores. And then there was a big problem because you'd be in the bookstore. <clears throat> you'd ask for the comic section. You'd end up seeing all the super stuff. And it'd be very few, if any, things like R- Arkram's Weirdo in a place like Barnes & Noble. So where you get that stuff, sure. you know, distribution, it just petered out, you know.
2: Now you were talking about trying to figure out how to make the the black and white and the the the, the line work and you even talked about wind and things we're, Were you, were each of you, all the artists there learning from each other or adapting because like everybody had different approaches to it. I mean, with like Mary Fleener bringing in all of, you know, the cubism and things and Julie, you doing the stuff she was doing and the fluidity of, 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 of her stuff. Were you guys learning from each other or was it just finding it within yourself?
0: You know, I can't speak for others, but I was very, very acutely aware of the fact that I did not want to look like I was taking anybody else's stuff. So I would read people's comics, but at the same time, I had a slight aversion because I didn't want to inadvertently. It takes a lot to translate your marks and find what works for you. Can you imagine if I start doing cubism stuff on my pages, be like, why does oh. she came married for you? You couldn't do nothing. Once
2: she got there, there was no way you could you could do that even if you wanted well, to.
0: Why would I why would I even try? So you find your own mark, your own way of putting it out. And you gotta know. There's no, I don't know, Mary li- lives in LA somewhere, maybe. Julie was up in Canada. We didn't get together. The only person's work I saw up close was Aileen's because she was my neighbor, but I didn't draw like her. And I know she wasn't riffing off of me. She had found her own thing. I guess what I'm saying is it's not like college where you're all living in the same or your studios are in the same building or something like that. You work in isolation at wherever you're at, you show up with the work or you send it in or something like that. I do know there was a couple times when I would show up in winters with my pages and it'd be like, oh, I misspelled a word or I forgot something. And I'd have to sit down at Robert's drawing table, pick up one of his pens and make my corrections right there. And it didn't seem like I was at the altar of holy or anything. It was just a drawing table uh, handy that I needed in order to get that change corrected because there's no Photoshop. So I mean, get the white out and fixing the board. Seems like what you sat down in crumbs today. And it's like no, no big deal. It's just something I had to do. In in terms of, I mean, that's a
2: that's a good point. In terms of printing, now you were coming from a art background where you had seen your things on display as you intended them to look. During the printing process, how frustrating was it was in in those early days? to do the work and then see what it looked like on paper.
0: I had a hard time because I'm very aware of like the texture of the paper and you know, if you put on white out and then you put another glob of it on if you put too much globs of white out you got a mountain <laughs> which when printed may show a little ghosting or something like that. So now you're getting shades. I didn't intend. So I, I had a lot. of It was a big, steep learning curve for me to figure out what I could get away with, what to do and what not to do when it came to translating marks and getting things printed. I, I, I look at the work side-by-side side comparison of the originals to the printed today, and I'm like, you know, it's appalling to me because I know what I was doing. I would. I was more interested in the shapes and the textures and you know that but it's a flat page people you know it took me a long time to say and now with photoshop hey it's great if i misspell a word or i got something wrong i'll just put it down here in the margin and slip it in later i don't have to make a patch with an exacto knife and tape it from the back and make sure it's clean and you know, I was appalled because I didn't like the way I was throwing down the marks, the way they were translating, which would look great in 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 oil paint, <laughs> but it's black and white. Yeah, it took me a while. I'm still, like I said, I'm still working on, sorry, learning things, when to stop. There were, I kept trying to figure out, there's something on, I kept trying to figure out, like, okay. My students have trouble with this too. So you got this jaw. There's no line really. Or the nose. What you have are various shadings. But if you don't shade it. With the right size of a cross hatch. It's going to look like you got. Lines on your neck. Or pieces of lumber. Or, or it was all over the place. When I started. I go back and I look. It's like sheesh you know. Clean that up. Clean it off. But I was trying to make it. Color in my mind, and it was coming out logs.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, we've we've talked to some inkers where they're 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 they want to they're coming from a painting background, and and they want to paint, and they they have to figure out inking techniques to do that, and it's it's very very hard, really hard. Uh, so, what's the difference between weirdo and women's comics in 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 your work? Like when you're doing that, when you started doing those. Were the stories different or was it a, just a different a different comic and you're doing your work and it didn't make any difference?
0: No, the only thing I could think of is that there was themes with women. There was a theme. So it'd be like the theme is disastrous relationships. It's so like, OK, I can tell a story about that. Sure. What story would I do? And I think, well, the first thing you think about is the breakup with so and so. It's like, I don't want to do that push past that a little Tyler. What, what can, can you remember something disastrous that happened to somebody else? And that's when I remembered my roommate who was South Korean.
2: Right. Yeah. So that was your roommate.
0: I yeah. see. And so I, it's, I mean, I could have picked a hundred stories about my own disastrous relationships, but I thought, look, let's see if we can focus on somebody else.
1: Oh, yeah, that, and that, was, that was actually good focus because I I found myself engaged in that one wondering what's going to happen next with this yeah, yeah. relationship. That was really well executed.
2: So Thank when you. when Women's Comics gets a new publisher for issues eleven through thirteen, and they're they're uh, doing it through Renegade Press, did you did did you know Denis Lobera? No, I'm sorry,
0: I wasn't part of the collective. Uh, So you you were just
2: submitting work and it didn't really matter who was who was publishing it.
0: I think I was on a list. They'd send me a thing and say, hey, you want to contribute? Be like, sure. And I didn't pay attention to the who was who. It's like, oh, here's another gig. Because I was looking, you know, I I really wanted to make a living at it. And it was hard to because the rates were so bad and I knew I was learning and I was new to the party. And so I was doing what I could to stay humble and try to understand how I could tell comics and tell a good story and all of that. And oh, here's another. Okay, I'll do one for them. Or I'll, here's a special one off Fanagraphics is doing. Okay, I'll do that. Was there something
2: different about being involved in women's comics because of the history? Of it, of the, the, it was just another, it was just another job, just like weirdo for
0: you. I hate to say that. I didn't, I didn't know there was a mission. You know, is there a mission? Oh, to be a part of women's means something. No, to be a part of women's meant, wow, I get to have a story published with a bunch of other awesome cartoonists. And is, is this when you met Trina or did you already know her? I think I must have met her through Turner because she and she and Ron were very good friends. And I think he published a lot of her or helped her in her beginnings, but she adored. He adored her and she was wonderful and always kind to me. I just. Trina was kind to me. Aileen was kind to me. Everybody in that comics community was so welcoming and so kind. I just felt wonderful. You know, I and I don't I, I also I was very sensitive about not wanting to be perceived as Justin Green's wife. Let's give her a job right. because married to Justin. Or, you know, I didn't want that. I was on my own merit. And so I made that clear with people, you know, that I don't want you to say what oh, we want you to be in this because you're we like Justin. I want you to do it because you like my work. You now, Trina has
2: has often talked about the sexism of the early, early underground stuff. Did you did you encounter that or did you was it not as pronounced by then or or it just wasn't something you were you were thinking about?
0: Oh, I'm aware of it now, but at the time I remember saying to her, I don't get what you're talking about. Oh, that's I don't feel interesting. That, you know, whatever I want to publish. Look, we had Aileen there. Check on these like We had Aileen as the editor. She was in for the work. So there was that. But I'll tell you something happened at one of these shows I was at recently. I can't remember if it was SVX or at Comic Con. But these I was on a panel with a bunch of guys. Maybe it was a weirdo thing. I don't remember, but there were, I was on a panel with a bunch of guys. And we were talking about the old days. And they were like, ha, ha, ha. And remember how we used to make 100 bucks a page? And I said, 100 bucks a page? I was in that issue. I only got paid 35 And they were like, ooh, ooh. I'm thinking, Trina was right. Do you think that was actually at the weirdo panel in San
2: Diego? That that was
0: where they were? No, I don't think it was. It it was something so revealing to me that these guys were all laughing about the low page rate. Maybe it was 75 bucks. And I know I was making 35. So it's like, fuck, they were paying the men more than me? Is it true? You know what a difference that would have made? If I had been able to make that same page rate, it seems like nothing today. But back then, you're spending... 20 to 30 hours on a page and i remember saying like oh aileen wants a four pager i wonder if i made it a five page that's an extra well i think i was getting 50 bucks maybe so that
1: was that and i always i think page rate should be the same but but do you think that was a gender thing or was it more like someone was had more of a reputation and people wanted to see their stuff more at that moment in time? Was there a seniority issue there, or was it really a gender difference?
0: I was all of the above, because there were times it would make me so damn mad. I would do a really good story, and then there'd be the names of the people contributing on the cover. And more! And more! That was my name, I guess. And more. <laughs> So how are you ever going to get looked at? How are you ever going to be recognized? How are you going to get up there if you don't get put on the cover? If they don't champion your work, if they don't get behind you, do don't pay you. Because when you're working for shit wages like that, a little bit of money, and you have to go get a second job and a third job, you can't put your full attention to things. If somebody had said to me, I love you so much, and I love your work so much, I'm gonna throw some money at you. I would have said, thank you. I could buy childcare and I can produce 10 pages. And they'll be like, I-, I can I can do this. Because guess what happened? The minute my kid got in college, I did soldier's heart.
2: Yeah, and and I can't wait to get to that because that's, that's the thing. I mean, that's something. But super quick, just because people are going to want to know, tell us, tell us who your your babysitter was back back in the early days.
0: Leonardo DiCaprio, Leo. Yep, and that's because his father
2: <laughs> his his father was was a comic book guy and 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 knew Justin. They had done some work together, and he was around, and he was good with kids, yeah. right? George.
0: George and I think Justin did some illustrations for him. Uh, I couldn't get a sitter so I had to bring the kid with me and I was like oh, I have to bring the kid to the party <laughs> and they were like don't worry about it. We've got child care and it was Ron's son Colin and his friend Leo and they oh, she was like "Mom, yeah <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> okay. yeah, okay so i moved and be with people and then I went I thought I'm going to go check on my kid and so I went in there and looked and they were (laughs) Leo was tickling her on the bed
1: (laughs) it was so cute how old old was he at that point
0: oh god okay he must have been like how old is this guy how old is he now
2: oh I don't know
0: they were a little older they were like 10 years old or something maybe
1: yeah so this was before he was on Growing Pains yeah yeah, because he's forty six.
0: He was and born in later had
2: his poster up 35. from Titanic. He was My born daughter's thirty five, so
1: he was probably yeah, 11, maybe fourteen or twelve. 12, 12 oh, even earlier before. 12, when was your daughter born exactly? Eighty five. Eighty five. So he's probably twelve. Yeah. There you go.
0: Yeah. So they were um, like yeah. playing video games and being like goofy guys, but then you know they were jumping on the bed. The next time I checked, they were, she was laughing her ass off. So that's <laughs> she had awesome. a great. And. And then yeah, we uh,
1: talked about uh, Georgia Caprio when we interviewed uh, Bill Stout. They're, they had some involvement together as well. That's pretty cool.
2: And then one other celebrity connection is, and I don't know if it's true or not, is is William Friedkin a cousin from uh, your your husband? Yeah. First cousin. Do you, do you know Although him?
0: Friedkin does not like to discuss this. He has disagreed. <laughs> from Justin for reasons that we do not understand nor care about anymore it's like fine you want to be like that stupid and let's see what other claim to fame I have I mean people say I know you they say that about me my students it's like oh I'm a celeb woo that's so cool (laughs) now he's the biggest thing I think Leo but I wanted so much for him to when she was going through her bad time when she was 12 i wanted so much for leo to show up and cheer her up but it didn't happen although she was able she got a lot of mileage out of that she had started in a new school and walked in and they were like who are you and she said it doesn't matter, but Leonardo DiCaprio is my babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> that that had to get her like right up there. Yeah, that she was
2: cool. All right. Alex is gonna talk about Late Bloomer and the 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 book the stories that go in it.
0: All right.
1: So you had worked on women's comics and you know in through the 90s there was uh, Twisted Sisters with Kitchen Sink. And a lot of this stuff was collected in 2005 in late Bloomer. Fantagraphics did it. It was a reprint, but there was also some unpublished work. And Robert Crumb said in the foreword that, and I'm going to quote him here it says, all about that your stories are all about gritty reality, the hard struggles of common everyday life, no escapism, no cutesying. She never tries to make herself come off as miss cool and clever. Nothing is contrived or overdramatized. The level of honesty about herself is shocking at times. You'll see, but it's the kind of revelation that uplifts and instructs. So, is that how you see your own work? Is that what you're aiming for when you're doing that? Is there a consciousness to it, or is it really an artistic subconscious effort to get energy out creatively? Well, tell us about that process a bit.
0: So what? Late Bloomer is is a collection of pretty much the stuff I did for Weirdo and Women's and some mm-hmm. other random one offs that were out there, and so the reason for doing them is that I just always wanted to tell a story. You know, I wanted it to be a good story, something worth reading. Pretty simple, like that. Mm-hmm. And people can read and interpret, but in order to tell a good story, you have to be honest. And so you can't shy away from difficult truths or uh, lie to your audience. All that stuff shows through. It seems funky or wrong.
1: Right. It doesn't so, fit.
0: Uh, no, it doesn't fit. So I, my work has, yeah, it does have an authenticity. It's because I, I tell tell you what's going on. I'm going to tell you what that what happened or what that thing was or what I felt or what I encountered.
1: One of my um, favorite ones from there is a 1991 story you did adult children of plumbers and pipe fitters. And it was this plumber's daughter who was like uh worked in a corporation and was very talented, but she was very foul mouthed and practical fixing people's pipes in the office. That was, that was funny. And how much of that do you feel like you've because your dad was a, uh, was a plumber that almost that you you come off this way to some people too yourself.
0: I was actually working in an office in a, a history center. And there was a lady there who kept, who was in a codependency group. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, what's that? You know? And then she would talk about her. She'd have to go hug her little teddy bear in her office and be like, that is so weird. And then she'd talk about codependency, codependency, and that she was an adult child of an alcoholic. It was the thing at the time, and I thought, well, I'm an adult child of a pipe sitter. <laughs> Wonder how that would be. And so I just imagined, you know, this lady on her way to a meeting with the big shoulder pads and the whole bit, you know, with the hair and nails, and having to go to the meeting, and yet notices in the break room, notices a drip. Well, that's, that could cost money because you know, she knows. Uh, she's, right. That
1: could what's in, she knows what's involved. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So she starts working, tinkering with it. And then it becomes a full blown problem. And they're like, I was thinking about that the other day. Cause the, the office, the main guy's name is Mr. Greedy. You tell Mr. Greedy, I'll be up in a minute. And so she gets involved and fixes the drain. She's cussing like a plumber. Because that's what they do. You so crock servant, <laughs> and you know, here's this. She's a, a lady with a puffy bow right here, ready for her yeah. meeting. Right, right. And so he tells Mister Grady, "I'm saving him thousands of dollars on plumbing bills."
1: Yeah, it's wait. a big, it's a big deal. Yeah.
0: And then she's in her codependency meeting later with her teddy bear, and she's talking about. How he doesn't appreciate what she, you know, what she did for him. Basically, so it was right. straight out of what this lady was talking about all the time about her codependency group. And I thought, okay, adult children of alcoholic. Well, I'm an adult child of a plumber, and this is how it would go down.
1: <laughs> okay, there you go. Yeah. Now 93. had a story. Migrant mother. And this was interesting because you, you lived in Sacramento in 1986, right. and this is all about being a new mom again. Traveling to Colorado, it was hell. Something about permanent damage to the right ear. No. Uh, uh, you know, so that that sounds that that sounds like a tough. That all happened.
0: It all happened. I went out there. My husband had a one of these miraculous gigs where he made twenty five thousand dollars in six weeks. It was fluke. So we were like in the money. Mm-hmm. He was ecstatic. And I got a cold when I was there, you know. Started to feel bad. Shitty, really sick. And it, it goes through that in the story. It talks about how I feel so terrible, but I just, I just get this thought in my head because my kid was terrible twos at the time. Right. I'm just gonna go home. I could, you know, because my home, I fixed the house is basically a giant rubber room. She couldn't hit her head on a coffee table because we didn't have one. It's just a piece of carpeting and pillows. There's nothing. Uh, very simple. So, just go home. Mm-hmm. I couldn't get home because I had terrible ear. They stop in Phoenix, then they were going to go home. I couldn't make it out of Phoenix. I terrible. I felt like there. It felt like honestly, it felt like up in there. You know, putting things up it, like it was like chopsticks. They were sticking up in the right, my right head. into that,
1: right into that frontal sinus. Yeah.
0: Oh, it was the most painful. Don't ever get on a plane with a cold because as they descended, I couldn't relieve the pressure. And it was pushing and I was trapped. I thought I was going to have a stroke. I thought I was going to explode. And I had a terrible kid. Everything wrong. I'd sent the baggage ahead. I had no cash on me. You know, it wouldn't happen today. But back then, it was an absolute disaster. And she was a hell on wheels in the airport.
1: <sighs> <laughs> this sounds hard. I feel like I did that to my mom. I'm sure. I feel like I feel like maybe every I put my mom to something like
0: that. Yeah, every kid acts terrible at at that age. But to be sick and stranded, it's just awful. <laughs> People like that story. I've heard over the years about they can relate to that, especially when they have their terrible kids. You know yeah Terrible.
1: yeah i i feel like i did stuff i think one time my mom took me to marshall's and then i actually went and hid in one of those clothes carousels for like five hours and she was she thought i was kidnapped she had the cops come oh and then i just doing? stayed there i stayed there and i tortured her and i knew what i was doing i think i was five at the time but she and, and she still brings it up now and then i finally got out ta-da and she was like, "That's not funny." I mean, it was. Yeah. I feel bad. It looked, it looked I bad.
0: think it's funny, Mom. Come yeah.
1: on. <laughs> and I feel like, yeah, you you were kind of tortured in a similar circumstance. So now, in 1995, and you talked. You mentioned about the Hannah story, about the your late sister Anne, that you found out more about. And just to get the, just to get, just so I'm clear on the years, because you mentioned this earlier, but. 1969, you were 18 and then you, and that's when you found out about Anne, right? When you were 18.
0: I think I was 17. You know why? Because I'm a late in the year birthday.
1: Okay. There you go. It
0: doesn't matter.
1: I know what you no, mean. I'm one about, of those too. Yeah, you're right. Okay.
0: I didn't hear about Anne until I was in my 1993, two or three. So what is that? 40s?
1: Okay, so although you found out about Anne at 18, you got the details later.
0: I Well, I knew my whole life. I I knew about Anne. Like I said, she was the star at night, and she was also, I knew we had her because I saw her pictures.
1: So even as a kid, your mom would make a reference to her?
0: Very simply that she was in the photographs, and not to think about it, just... Mm. and. Every now and then she'd just start crying about something I had to
1: do with that, and then it would be it. And then that was it. And and that was done in Drawn and Quarterly One in 1994. And then you got now you were nominated for 1995 Eisner Award, and it's on the Fantagraphics list of top 100 comics of the 20th century. So this struck a chord with a lot of readers, including myself when I first read it. I don't I've never had that happen to me, but I can easily see that happening to any parent or any family. What do you think it is about that story that about your story with that that connects so many people when when they all read that?
0: I don't know because <clears throat> I started to realize that I was connecting at a certain point. And yet I didn't want to feel like, oh, this is my job to connect. With these emotionally gripping stories, because I only had one sister that died, mm-hmm. and I thought I was so happy that I was time tripping with it, you know, showing old an older ear or I could do before, like looking back at ago and today and translating visually I was looking at the formal aspects of conveying the idea, but I don't really. When I did Hannah, I'd worked at that history place for five years, and I got laid off, and then I banged it out in, like, a few months. So it was pent up. Yeah. I'd been doing weirdo stories, and I had to stop or cut back a lot because I was working at this history place. And then that's during that time is when my mom told me. And so the first chance I got, that's the story I did. I remember Chris Olivero saying afterwards, do you think you could do another one like that for our, for our next issue? And it was like, no!
1: Right. We need more of that. <laughs> yeah.
0: I can't. And then I wanted to, you can't overanalyze things or you'll kill it. What? You okay? Well,
1: there was something about, also, you made mention of abduction of 12-year-old poly class. Is that yes. right?
0: And yeah, that because had some during the whole connection. time it, in California, this was one of the most gut wrenching abduction of a chill of a child. It was live television. So uh, back back before the media, the way it is today, you can get on your thing and look up anything at any time. So you're sitting there watching TV, you know, and you see the Challenger explode. You're watching TV all of a sudden there's live coverage from Santa Rosa about this girl who was stolen out of her bedroom. Mm-hmm. It was horrible. Right. And so, or the kid gets stuck in the drain pipe. So you see, it was the whole experience. There was a, an experience that we really don't have today in that it comes upon you like that. Oh, this is shocking. And so the whole time I was doing that, yeah. The poly class drama was unfolding. And then they had her, funeral live oh, it, it was so sad God, so i put that emotion into peace Into here. hannah
1: right yeah
0: i mean it wasn't because of that but it was that's where i was at when yeah. i was doing i knew i was like okay you know with anything that you're doing it's emotional you have to hit the content but when i did that hannah story <clears throat> I had also done all this research into like, wait a minute, Ravenswood hospital. Are they still in business? Mm.
1: And okay, so you I, looked it, into the hospital where the old fashioned way died.
0: I had to look things up and make phone calls. And so when I found out that she died because the hospital had fucked up, I called the hospital to find you get her records. And the one lady says, "Oh yeah, okay, yeah, we got them right here." I said, "Oh great, okay, because I want them.
1: Yeah,
0: send them to me here. Well, okay, and then call call back tomorrow. Fine, I will. I call back and I get this. They we're going to transfer you to this other lady. So I get this other lady. She says, "Oh hi, so you're the sister of a long deceased and Tyler. Oh, I understand that you're you have a desire to." contribute to a fund to have a memorial fountain built in her i said what no she honestly thought i was calling ravenswood hospital this lady to donate money so they could build a memorial fountain to her i said where did you get that idea i want her i want my sister's records i want to know exactly according to you guys what happened i know what happened well, I kept not hearing, not hearing, and hearing. A couple of weeks later, I called back, and they said, oh, there's no records. Yeah. They conveniently And that lost.
1: happened around the time you were putting that story together? That happened in the 90s, this this situation with the records?
0: So when I, because my mom didn't want anything to do with it. I was like, mom, you can still sue. She was like, leave it alone. So when I was drawing the Hannah story, and there's that place where she's got the burns, I draw a line and there's like smeared the red ink is smeared that's because i was crying while i was drawing it and i was having taking a tissue and dabbing because i didn't want to get it on the page but it hit the red line and made all those smear marks that were her burns
1: hmm. oh wow so then the mechanism of death just so from what I read, was that she had burned herself. I think your uh, mom was preparing something on the oven. It poured on her, it burned her. She went to the hospital, stayed in overnight. Wait, and stop,
0: they, stop. Okay. There's no ambulance. There's no nine one one. So you're screaming out the window while you're hanging your kid. Help! Right. Help!
1: Is, yes.
0: Neighbor drives her to the place. They say she'll be fine. We bandaged her up. Yes. Go home. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Because there's no phone. My mom didn't. Dad didn't have a phone yet.
1: Right. Right.
0: So when they came in the next morning with their bouquet to pick up their child, a clerk at the front desk says, "Oh, she's listed as deceased."
1: Right. So they they she slept on her back, vomited and they choked. They gave on her, her some right? medicine. Yeah.
0: They gave her medicine. It made her choke. And because they had her on her back, she aspirated.
1: Okay. There you go.
0: That's, I mean, today you would sue the hell out of somebody like that. But my mom said, and I said it in the strip, and she's always maintained that that would have been no good money. It never would have brought us to any kind of goodness or happiness. Hmm. She's right.
1: Right. Revenge money in a way. So, yeah, it's hard to put, yeah, money and justice, how that, that's a complicated Complex question.
0: And there's people that would say, Take the money. She said, She did not tell the day she died. She didn't want to discuss it.
1: Anything. Right.
0: He thought it was her fault.
1: So then, yeah, that's interesting because now the next topic is 004 1995 about licking a dog's butt. That's quite a different topic than what we were just talking about. But you did create more things, you did go over more stories. One was uh, really interesting. It
0: was. Part of that is I like, I would every now and then say, it's comics. Why don't you make something kind of funny?
1: There you go. And that's what that is. It's a departure from the series. The night I rode the hard drive to heartbreak, 1996. The uh, computer matching and a terrible night at the dance. This was printed in Mind Riot, coming of age in comics. So that's interesting. So this was in your high school that they had a computer match, with your yeah, with, and and this was what in this in the late sixties they were doing that,
0: yeah that was a theme comic it had to be about new technology and stuff that, okay. that was the theme so I thought about that computer dance and we'd have these cards I was looking for some we'd have these like IBM cards and we'd have to f- fill in the circles of what our ideal mate look like our okay. ideal okay. yeah so then we. They matched us with the high school, like the public school kids. That was the mistake.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't let the Catholic kids integrate with them.
0: Uh huh. And so, yeah, the story goes on to talk about how I get Mr. Gorgeous, but he's not interested in me. I'm all dialed up, working class style, with the wrong clothes, and I'm not willing to do what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So I barked at him like a dog.
1: <laughs> that's he a good reaction. He called me a dog,
0: so I caught him in the parking lot. Rawr, 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 you're terrible.
1: And you actually did that.
0: Yeah. I do that. My stories are not fiction.
1: That's amazing, <laughs> I think. I uh, That's funny. 2002, the substitute teacher at Warzone oh. Elementary, um, wanting to survive the parking lot but it turned into a sad discussion of the mental illness of the young girl Mara who killed herself. That was an interesting one because it kind of starts off comical, but then it becomes this like really sad thing. And that's an interesting, almost bittersweet story, right?
0: Because that's, isn't that the way it is with children? And I'm talking about my experiences as a sub, which anybody who's been a substitute teacher knows you've got a million stories and you have to be adaptable and you have to, you know, make it up on the fly half the time. And I really kind of covered the topics of the situations I would roll into. And then, it, yeah, the, the most shocking was was when this incident with this girl who over the weekend hung herself, and then to go back to that same school and find out about it.
1: Right. And no one called you. No one told you, hey, well, that person that you sub. have connected with did that. Yeah.
0: I tell the sub. The sub lady. That was that was that was hard.
1: So 2002, and in the end, and you work your daughter into the comic, and she's older, and she understands comics now. She's co-author in it. So this is an interesting evolution from her being the toddler that was torturing you on a flight, and now it's like she's in the comics with you. So tell us about that, and kind of seeing her grow up, and. And being a co-author in some of this stuff.
0: Well, in Late Bloomer, I set it up into three sections. So the first section, you'll see a picture of her as a little baby. On on the first part of the, kind of like the first section, Mm -hmm. there's an image of her in the yard and she's on the little blanket I have down. She's cute. (laughs) I've got a few little, her little things on the clothesline and then the Chapter head for the second chapter shows kind of our kid crap backyard and she's like 10 and there's like you know things are a little bit more disarray and I think I show the metaphor for myself on the first one the chair I have a, there's a chair a drawing table chair and it's in pretty good shape a little bit worn and by the third one there's a tiny little bikini of hers on the clothesline those are her clothes as they go along the baby clothes there's a bunch of them when she's 10, there's a few less, and then her little bikini, and she's in a lawn chair, and my my drawing table chair is like this. So I show the evolution of her physically for the chapter heads for the content from each of the sections. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time she gets to a certain age, yeah, she knows that Mommy's going to tell a story about me. Right, Mom? <laughs>
1: <sighs> mommy always talks about me yeah
0: well at a certain point when she was she she knew kind of early on i love this story when she went to kindergarten she came back home and she said mom guess what mommy jason's daddy works at a bank i'd say okay and then I thought, wonder what that's about. And it's like oh, because every adult she knows is a cartoonist, mm. and here she met a kid <laughs> whose parent is something normal, and she was shocked by it.
1: Yeah, that's right, culture <laughs> shock.
0: Yeah. So she was aware of the, com- you know, that she was in the comics, and over the years, I've explained to her and apologized and all the stuff. She said, "I don't care."
1: 2005, the outrage is a fun story. We met, we alluded to that a little bit earlier too, but that was 16 pages. It was about the love of the early '80s who went off and got rich, and then you got married to Judd, who I think is Justin. Yeah. From just the name switch a little bit. Right. And then and then there was this thought of Roy just kind of getting rich. And this is interesting because a lot, of, and this kind of goes to what Robert Krem was saying about you, is that you don't put yourself out as the perfect winner or the perfect victor. You put out like things that even the things that you might be, have some weird feelings about, or even slight that a lot of people would be embarrassed about, but you put it all out there. You, There's no filter.
0: And that's the comic where I do talk about how I get overwhelmed with rage over yeah, he took my energies, a lot of stuff we worked on together. Maybe it wasn't specifically exactly lifted from my sketchbook, but it was certainly lifted from the time where we evolved together. Mm-hmm. And it just struck me when I was, like, at my lowest. And it seemed like, oh, he wins the art game, and I'm the loser, and I've got this baby, and and I had lost my milk that week, and I had what they – you know, you get postpartum depression, but you get postpartum psychosis. You can get that after you've stopped nursing. I didn't realize that nursing can defer postpartum depression. Right. and I yeah, was a, It,
1: it kind of holds on to some of the pregnancy hormone doing that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I crashed. I was having a crash when I saw that show. And that's when I thought I'd stab her to death. <laughs> whole thing, would not it? You know, it was wrong. My brain was wrong. My brain was off. I had to get help, but right. and they didn't know what that was back then. Now they know it. You know, they can. If there are women who are having this problem, they can, or even have a tendency of that. But there was not even a tendency. I remember going to the emergency room. They sent me to a psychologist, and I was it was shameful and embarrassing. That's stupid.
1: No, but I, that's interesting that you and that you expressed it and, and published it, and,
0: and so many women have come up to me and said, "I'm so glad you did that. I'm so glad you've revealed pregnancy and motherhood to be exactly what it can be for some of us."
1: Right, right.
2: And it's not just the narrative; it's not just that you told a story. It seems to me that your your storytelling really takes a leap up in this and maybe it's because you had enough space to do it but those images are really really powerful not to say that others weren't but the but the the transformation of you of your body as you're as you're losing it and becoming demonic is i think the most powerful work you had done up to that point now of course you get to and we're going to do it next uh segue to you'll never know but but those 12 pages just kick ass in terms of of conveying just how desperate and how how dangerous the situation was
0: well i'll tell you that was a full color yeah everything everything about it the lines i really worked on uh, i'm talking about formalism now but i really wanted every single stroke to have to carry and convey mood through color and it was i was able to do that so i was really happy to do that but yeah, hey, knowing I could do that meant that yes, I could go to the rage. I could do rage. I could sh- I could use the color to enhance that, and then I was getting skilled to the point where I knew how to paint. I could pace it this way. I could do this. I could show this. I could add this. You know? Because you couldn't was- have told that story the
2: same way without the color. It wouldn't. Have, it, oh. it would have been something entirely different.
0: No. So the doors were opening to color. And I did that just after that at the same, I mean, right. It was like that. And then boom, got right into, you'll never know which turned into soldier's heart. So that was like, my kid was in college. I knocked that out. I got that. Like she graduated in 2003 and left home. No, she graduated high school in 2003 and left home. Moved out. I got that flipped around and it was published in 2005, right? Late bloomer. Yeah. 2005. And then when it came out, I went to the college up here because I had been subbing and I threw it on the desk of the dean of the art college. And I said, I need to be teaching this. It doesn't get any better than this. I can do this. I just bullshitted my (laughs) way into a job i was sick and tired i've been i been working i worked at a i did a festival in this town it's like these fuckers don't i'm sitting in this meeting they're talking about where are we going to place the tra- two hours on where are we going to place the trash can for the festival well i can draw a trash can better than anybody here i'm i don't want to do any more meetings i want to if i'm going to do any work it's going to be teaching this stuff so I bullshitted my way into teaching a class that lasted for sixteen years.
2: That's great. And that was that was. I know it was on comics, but in in what like what were you actually doing in it? I mean, what was it? Was it in primarily class? a how to? Yes, was it a how to? Was it was it was it primarily? It wasn't like comics history. It was was it a learning to do comics hands
0: on kind of class? I. I developed a, actually, I did the teacher thing. I developed a mission, rubric, standards, the whole thing. I taught them how to do it. I taught them the history of comics and how to assess comics, how to be, how to to make critical assessments based on content and form. And I never used McLeod's book. Sometimes I had kids saying, Are we gonna have a textbook? I said, I'm your textbook, listen.
2: Now, was that because you don't agree with McLeod's book, or is it just because you didn't think a, a textbook was appropriate, would get in the way of the education?
0: I didn't want, yeah, I didn't want it to be, hi, I'm a consumer. I demand a textbook. Show me how we do this. And here's then I'll feel like I have the outcome that I paid for. It's like no textbooks. Listen, I'm, I'm very well craft. I have a very, I'm on top of my craft. You want to learn how to do comics? Listen to what I have to tell you and watch what I show you, right? Don't be going to some book. That's going to say, here's how you do sequence. Here's it. I'll show you. We'll read it. I had them, I gave them, they each had to do, they each had to investigate like two or three artists work. So I'd say you're going to do Charles Burns and you're going to do Debbie Drescher, for example. Great. And they'd have to go find the work, buy the books, buy their books if they, if they could, I had a list of people. Like the most represso kid in the class, I'd give him S. Clay Wilson. <laughs> go find some of S. Clay Wilson's work and read it. <clears throat> and then they'd have to read the work and do a report based on the assessment tool that I had drafted, which means they would have to look at the visual characteristics. They'd have to do, you know, technical assessment, and then content assessment based on things like how well does the character convey the mood, blah, blah, blah.
2: So oh, this is fascinating. And I, I wish we could, because I was I was a teacher too for 15 years, and I would love to talk about this and and get into rubrics and everything else, but we we don't we we want to give you'll never know a fair right. amount of um,
0: yeah. attention.
2: So let, let's talk about that. In in like, tell me when you realized this was going to be a well, the big don't. project that it was.
0: I didn't quite know. I just know that Dad had called up and said, you know, he's concerned about not. He was remembering things about the war. I remember that that was interesting to me because I didn't have a good communication with my dad for years. And now all of a sudden he was talking to me and I was amazed that we could talk, you know, and so it gave us a place to connect, you know, We're like what, what, wait, Chuck, Hey Chuck. You know, I got to talk to him. I was no longer the pipsqueak. I could say, dad, I could call him on the phone. I had a reason to talk to him and a reason to call. And so I thought, I'll. before I decided to do the thing, I thought I'd just videotape his story. And when I went over there to Indiana, where they lived, and sat him down, and he did that thing where he was going, turn it off, turn it off. He didn't want to talk about the war. I thought, oh, boy, why not? Why not talk about it, Chuck? You get this look. so I thought oh that's interesting I'm gonna do some research so I got my big heavy books out I went to the library and I did I thought holy god based on what he told me his records and the photographs I started to realize this guy was in trouble and which and then it started to click and explain things so it's like I want to write about this I want to draw this and the first thing I drew was the pages that talked about he was getting ready to go into chemotherapy and there was all his chemicals I thought this will be fun to draw I did I really didn't know where I was going with the book now I didn't have an overview type thing I just knew parts of it he had trouble talking about it but he was in France and he was here and he talked about this my mom did this And at the same time, this was going on, so I thought, okay, I'm going to try to pull all these elements together, give you a sense of the now, the then, and tell the story through those modes. So the first fun thing to draw, which came right out of that story, we were just talking about the outrage, using color to really convey was a pile of chemicals. And I used a putrid greenish-yellow to show the stink marks coming off of the the fumes and (laughs) stuff <laughs> and then that because that was telling about chemo so why was why was i talking about chemo because he had resilience so that was a quality i wanted to talk about and how does a person who can stand down chemo stand down cancer the way that he did why can't he stand down this i guess he has i guess he has stood down whatever demons are bothering him so let me explain who this guy is to the reader so i, I felt like I had to, people had to know him a little bit in order to feel what he felt, feel his anguish, to feel how I felt, you know, kind of trying to facilitate that, but couldn't because my life was a wreck. So you got somebody who's interested in trying to help out as if I was capable. Now, at this point, who was,
2: you would you would made arrangements for this to be, I mean, you, you knew this was a project and did you have an editor that was looking at your work as you were going along? Nope. When did, did that happen? At at, at some point you made a, a, you made arrangements for this to be published.
0: Well, I'd always published with Fantagraphics. I worked with Kim Thompson over there. And so he was just like, yeah, do whatever you want. Oh, I had a handshake deal, you know. Hey, want to do this? Okay, let's shake hands. We'll do this. Did the whole thing here in this very spot where I'm at now? Sent all the files by email or Dropbox, or wherever it is, over the internet. So you sent
2: you sent the the first volume to Kim Thompson and said, "Here it is." What was his reaction? Because it's it's like, I mean. It's, and I talked about the last thing being groundbreaking, but this is this is beautiful in a way. I mean, this is artistic in a way that is wholly unexpected. Right. And one of the, I think, more important autobiographical things that you know, right up there with with you know the the big ones. This is oh. one of those. And what was the reaction by Thompson?
0: I mean, he was excited. He was thrilled. He was. He had asked me years and years ago to up my game a little bit. Don't do the body stuff. He said, you you pull off the feeling stuff so much better. It's like I knew that. I just needed that nudge. But he pretty much just let me do what I'm going to do. You know, he had faith in me. And it just wasn't, you know, he didn't say, like, I think on page 57 it's not quit. He didn't say any of that stuff. That was all my doing. Now, was
2: there... Was it your decision to do it in three volumes?
0: Yeah, and I did that because my parents at the time, well, they were getting older and older, and I honestly didn't know if they were going to make it. And so I thought, oh, God, this is taking me, it took me so much longer. I kept thinking of little places where I needed to add more content, and the book, as I was doing it, it was taking shape. I love that title. You'll never know. But when it became when we got all done with the three, Gary was like, and Kim was gone by then. Gary was like, nope, people don't get it. And I said, what do you mean they don't get it? It's their theme song. It's the things you don't know. It's everything. I tied the whole thing in with this title. And he said, nope. And so nobody ever meddled with me about anything except that Gary didn't want the title. You'll never know. He said it was the publicist or somebody or no, I don't know. Nor, I don't know. Somebody didn't like it up the food chain. And so it had to be changed, which I've hated, but it's fine. Soldier's heart is what it is. I did it in three sections because of my elderly parents. And also because it was taking me so long. I needed the buoyancy. I needed that propelling of like, okay, I got one. Now I'm going to go on to the second one. And then this leads to the third. You know, it just it it was it was gaining traction. Like when that New York Times the first when the first volume came out, the New York Times gave it a ravey view. It was like, oh god, now I got to live up to that. <laughs> Jesus, but I you know I kept thinking I got to do that. I also felt like I had done my career up until that point. It fits and starts due to my parenting duties and other responsibilities. I never had the time to devote to just sitting down and doing my work. So I had this job at the college and I could do it. You know, I could fit it in and kind of get it done and take care of them. I'd take the pages up there to take care of them. And um, it just sort of tumbled out that way. And then I put the four, when I put it together as the soldier's heart, I added 60 more pages so it turned it, it turned out to be a quite a big thing.
2: How did what what kind of reaction did you? I mean, could you have surviving family? Your brothers? What was your family's reaction? Various people that saw it during the the production of it, or did or did oh, anybody see it until it? My was, dad
0: loved it. He saw it and he loved it. My mom saw the first two.
2: Right, I know she didn't get she to see the it. end.
0: He didn't get to see the end. My dad saw. He didn't get to see the soldier's heart, big thick book, but he saw the three. My sisters lived through the two. My brothers don't like my dad, so they don't. I don't you know, it doesn't matter what they think. It's a doorstop to them. Uh,
2: and your husband, because he's a he's a uh, he's a player in it too. He's not a, a always a sympathetic figure in this. Was he, uh, (laughs) to say the least, was he, did he think it was, it was fair?
0: Yes, he did. And he said, he he thought, I I think I was fair to him. I think I did it. I did it pretty well. And I've also had to smack some people around. It's like, come on, it's a story. You know I mean? I'm going to tell it as close as I can, but for the sake of reading, readability, it's not like you're reading through like every single date has to follow, you have there's some ply. You have to be pliable. You have to have some flexibility in things here and there. So even though it's like true and it all happened, you you do have to bend it around. It has to shape into a story. It wouldn't read right if you did it just like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then after that, exactly at this time, this happened. That's not the craft of the art. The art itself has to live. Have Have you talked to? Uh...
2: Surviving veterans of the war. Yes, yes. Tell us about that, because that—that I wish my dad had gotten to see this. He died before this came out.
0: So many people have told me how much this book means to them because either a relative or they did like you you just expressed. I've gone give talks at places and people come up to me afterwards are crying. I wish it had been out 20 years earlier or 10 years earlier than it did or it had a bigger impact, reached more people. That's okay. I don't think my work's on a timeline like that. But I decided to have my class, my students, have the experience of interviewing veterans and then do interpreting their material. That was the lesson. And to listen, interpret and then create a story based on what you heard. So I would bring them into my classroom. I'd bring the veterans into the class. That was one of the high points of teaching is recruiting the vets, getting them into the class, having the students do this work, and then presenting them with the original artwork afterwards. It was just so great, it was so great. And these guys appreciated me and women. They were so appreciative of what I had done. The American Legion came and did a video of me and everything like that. What I hate about all of this is that it's a story about resilience, but it's also about post-traumatic stress, and it's about the effect of war. So it's not glory, glory to the hero, you know, war heroes. It's about, again, difficult truths and what we live with. You know, when faced in certain situations, how my dad got through it, how it affected me. And so now that patriotism and being an American and all that stuff has been hijacked by these patriots, they don't like it. Because you showed a soldier who was weak. I've had somebody say that. Oh. No soldiers are weak like that. And then there, you know, you know, we come to find out with the numbers being the way they are with veteran suicides. No, war can it messes with the psyche. I'm glad I wrote the book, but it just kills me the way that it's people have a perception of the military. A lot of people won't read it because they think it's about it's just a soldier book. It's about you know. Oh, I'm not interested in the military. Therefore, I'm not going to read Soldier's Heart. But you became
2: much more in demand after this in terms of being brought into classes. I remember, I think you came to USC when I was teaching from there. And I was super aware of your book in, mm-hmm. in that context as well. It just changed Who you are as a as an artist? Wouldn't you say? I mean, as as both in terms of perception and in terms of your ambition and what you were doing.
0: Well, there was a little bit of a thing, you know. She's a weirdo artist, so she was in women's. You know, she's a lightweight. She doesn't finish any. uh, Somebody said she doesn't finish anything. In fact, there was a very cutting comment. I was at this talk in Chicago, and it was centered around some artists. Some Key artists of culture. Think about Gary Panter, the Crumbs, Spiegelman, Francois, Joe Sacco, Linda Berry, Charles Burns, Chris Ware. Okay. And somebody saw me sitting there and said, what's she doing here? Referring to me. Yeah. And this, so this was 2012. And I thought, oh, you, you think I'm here because of my husband? Have you not read it? My latest work? You know, I when I heard that, I was just like, why does this shit exist?
2: It bothered me. But yes. No Once one can Sol- say that after Soldier's Heart. Huh? No one can no one should have said that in the first place, but they Which, but but now they can't say it, right? I mean it has never, the perception has changed. And,
0: thankfully, yes, it's not said. And I think I'm not and more anymore. <laughs> And more on Twitter. <laughs> no, I'm not I mean, I told my daughter, I would never, ever, ever sacrifice one day of being with you that you needed me, or being with you as your mom, so that I could have a bigger career as a cartoonist. So the fact that, you know, I raised a child, she's off and running and doing well. And she had a lot of psychological problems from OCD and stuff like that. Probably at the time when I could have hit it on a second hard, like around the time of um, 1997, 98 in there, I had to back up because she needed my help. But I don't care what kind of timeline am I on. I just have to tell the great story. There is a creep thing going on now. It's I'm getting old. and I've got a big story I'm doing now, and it's like I must finish. But it's it's so exciting for me to do this work, the one I'm working on now.
2: And we're gonna we're gonna get to that after we talk about the reaction to this after the two thousand and fifteen publication what what happens the following year in terms of all the recognition and things i i do want to ask about one thing and this is because because i'm a southerner and therefore have a great weird love of tomatoes i want to talk about your your cincinnati magazine i i mean i love tomatoes talk to me about your your one-page strip that you you would do for cincinnati magazine
0: Oh, yeah. This was in 2013. They called me up and said, hey, could you do the inside back cover? I was like, yes, I'm on for that. So how about call it tomatoes? Because one of the things I did, there were riots in this town in 2001. Racial cop killing, terrible thing. And I should call it civil unrest because we got a lot of police reform after that incident. But, of course, what happens in, in situations like that often happens is that a bunch of people packed up and moved out to the suburbs. And I thought, nope, I'm going to move into a neighborhood that that's, has a variety of people because I need to know, I think we need to know each other. I'd gone through diversity training through the Underground Railroad Freedom Center, and I was considered to be a modern-day freedom conductor. And my task, I felt, was to live in a neighborhood where I could get to know African-Americans in a way that wasn't stupid, pressurized, or artificial. So why not just grow food? (laughs) I started a community garden. And that's how I got to know people. I turned my front yard into like a place where people could come. And the currency was tomatoes. Yeah. So that meant that, I could give this guy a tomato that I grew in the garden. And then, you know, next time I'd see him, he's in the back of a squad car, but we could talk about how delicious that was, that tomato that time. So it was like it was almost like tomatoes were the, the currency and they smoothed things out and we got talking and we got to know each other. The kids were calling me the plant lady. It brought so many adventures. And I have loved living in this neighborhood and getting to know people just do stupid thing like tomatoes, you know, a simple thing like that. I don't want to say stupid. So when this guy said, do you want to do a strip? I said, yeah, I want to talk about living in, this, in my neighborhood. So the strips every week give a little slice of life about a variety of things generally around growing, but generally around being and having very casual, but really it was really, really been a sweet look at this life in a neighborhood. Yeah,
2: whether it was corn or tomatoes or whatever you you had growing in your garden, you would take it and you would just sometimes just put it on the neighbor's front porch. Or Mm -hmm. I remember when I would go back to Duke to visit, because I was teaching from LA, but for Duke, I would go back and a professor's wife would come in with eggs and just say, here's, here's, Here's a dozen eggs and hand them to you. And that's a, a form of, of communication and goodwill and community that's, that's a lot of people wouldn't understand. So I, I just think that's great that you conveyed that.
0: Yeah, I just wanted to show normalcy because it's always like, you know, African-Americans are depicted in such and such a way. Well, I don't see that here. You know, I just see a guy walking down the street or this one. Sometimes, yeah, this guy over here, he's hollering out the window. Or this one over here is doing this and that. But these are not them and that. These are people. These are my neighbors. That is Mr. Keels. That is Jack. This is Gladys. That's Gloria. This is Iris. So these are real people. And they've lived beautiful, full lives that have had difficulty. And so I'm just going to talk about what we all have in common. And and I, I just want to
2: say that we, because we, we're trying to get, <clears throat> cover everything, but I do want to acknowledge that you had some rough years during this uh, process of, of doing the, the You'll Never Know, and that you lost your mom, you lost your sister, you lost your friend, Rose, was it?
0: Yeah, my neighbor down the street that's in tomatoes. I call her Iris in the strip, but Rose, yeah that you had
2: to put your dog to sleep. You were rot your house was robbed twice. You got a, a weird disease in Europe. I mean, just, and, and how, you know, while you're doing the, the, the work of your life, the best work of your life, you're also having to persevere through all of this that could crush you. And I crushed somebody and I, I just wanted to acknowledge that. And then you get to 2016 and Everything's being acknowledged, the success of your, your book. And Alex, you're going to take us through that that particular year.
1: Yeah, there's quite a few celebrations that year. So I think five, maybe, maybe more. But you had a gallery show at the University of uh, Cincinnati. Yes. Um, this exhibition, and from what they're quoting, this exhibition serves as the purging of the past with fragments of past projects Objects from her past and her father's workshop. In addition, we present a collection of artifacts from her life and studio practice, which provides a look into the mind and spirit that molds her vision of the world. So, what it what? And you were the cover story in the Cincinnati City Beat there. But can you explain what that what that means? What they were commenting on and what they were showing of your stuff?
0: Well, first of all, I showed every single page of the book, and I had it hanging on clotheslines in the gallery. And so when I met with the gallery guy, he said, I said, so I'm not going to frame this. No way. Let's just hang it up on clothesline. I like that. I've done that before in a couple of little shows before previous to this where I've hung my stuff with pins. And then he said, okay, so what are you going to do with that second room? I said, second room. Yeah. I just had this room, huge, big gallery space. No, the the adjoining room. We're giving you that room too. It was like, yikes. Okay. So right away, I thought, okay, I just thought of a giant head. I got a yeah. piece of plywood, and I cut out a giant, this face I always do with the ponytail, you know? Uh-huh. I, I just took a I took a piece of charcoal. What's that called? Vine charcoal. Right. I drew the big head and the ponytail. But you have to get in the doorway, so I just used two sheets of plywood, And where they came together kind of through here, this part. (laughs) I'll put this on this side of the door and this side and that side of the door. And I cut out the, I cut them out. So it's like a giant cutout of a head. And then what I put in there was the artwork I've been working on is for this next project I'm working on. What I had to date, some of the art that I did, some of the single panel things, some narratives and sculpture. Because I've been making three-dimensional comics. I started yeah, yeah around. I love that. It's like I spent like all that time on Soldier's Heart scanning and correcting. You know, you spend 30 hours on a page and then 10 hours on Photoshop mm-hmm. for each page. Ah.
1: Yeah, and it's so, two-dimensional space just in that for a long that. time.
0: So, yeah, I was picking up saw blades and drawing pictures, You know, telling stories. And I was a love that. So I had that stuff to show. I had things like, well, my sister said she had cancer and she wanted to get her hair cut before it fell out. I said, fine. And I put these things in my hair and chopped it off. So I had chunks of my hair. And so I put that on the wall and tell and write in pencil, right on the wall, what that was. Above the drawing I did of I always have this thing with my students. It's like, are you stuck to a self-portrait? So when I was so stuck with grief, when my sister died, I did a self-portrait that is so sad. So I put that above the hair. So there was three-dimensional things with two-dimensional things all around the space. I had a facsimile of my dad's work, workbench. I Against the wall, I had a bunch of stuff, pictures, drawings, a bunch of his crap. That my brothers wanted to throw away and i kept and so you got this immersive feel and my drawing table was there so you got mm-hmm. this immersive feel that you were in a space and then i had it set up that like here's here's all this this is what insp- this is inspiration over here this is yeah. this over here. different areas where things were going on so if you could go in there and that's why it became the inside of my mind as yes a, and then it was security. carol it
1: was carol world
0: <laughs> it was that it <laughs> it was it was uh, really a bear to put together but because it was at the college we had a lot of student helpers
1: oh good there you go
0: you made it easy
1: so we mentioned you were the cover story in the cincinnati beat also you spoke at the billy ireland cartoon art museum on the unique challenges of autobiographical storytelling yes. uh, set in real time with real characters Mm-hmm. We also spoke at the society of illustrators it was hard why was that hard
0: i was with tom hart he just wrote a book about losing his child so i called it the crying towel tour we were supposed to tour and i couldn't do it right i was stressed out by that time by everything that it was starting to gang up on me and i couldn't i had all these symptoms i said sorry tom i just it was too much and exhaustion had set in and you know, you talked about being strong, I would have crushed somebody, it started to crush me in this year. You know? mm.
1: So even though there was all these accolades this year, it was actually kind of a stressful
0: year. Oh, I was a wreck. And then I was within two, I was you could go like this and it's you know, I was this always this close to falling apart.
1: Very fragile. Okay. Yep. Then also that same year you received the cartoonist studio prize from Slate Book Review with fellow recipient Sergio Aragonis. You also accepted the Master Cartoonist Award from Cartoonist oh,
0: Crossroads. That one I got by myself. I shared Sergio with Master Cartoonist.
1: Oh, okay. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, with Sergio you accepted the Master Cartoonist Award. Yes. From Cartoonist Crossroads Columbus. So it's a lot. There's a lot of celebration, a lot of focus on you and a lot of eyes on you. And it sounds like there was a feeling of recognition, but also stress and anxiety in a way. You mentioned symptoms. What were these symptoms?
0: Well, I have tinnitus real bad. So it went from having one tone to five. I had uh, developed something, stomach, during soldier's heart. You'll never know because you're hunched over the drawing table. Mm. Stomach.
1: Stress, so like hunching over, and it's squishing your stomach in a way.
0: Just you know, come on, I'm almost seventy now.
1: Okay, Gain. like musculoskeletal. So
0: oh, long.
1: Oh, oh, oh
0: my back hurts. Oh, this hurts. Yeah, hurts. everything
1: just starts to hurt. Yeah, with repetitive and motion. When you're stressed
0: right. out, this hurts worse. Oh no, this hurts. it gets worse. And All that my gets and worse. Rose used to say, Carol, you're stressed. Go take a bath. Yeah. Well, I don't have a bathtub. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Yeah. So what are you going to do, Tyler? You know, and I'm out. I like to, I, I'm not in nature. I'm not a hiker. I like to just go outside. Well, <laughs> you know, got a dog on outside. It's just everything got to me and you know thinking too much. It was I was paralyzed. I've been paralyzed until recently. I've been totally unable to function. But in that came a great joy, formania
1: Fab Formania, which Jim, go ahead. All right. So let's let's
2: let's talk about that. That seemed almost like a a palate cleanser, a a Yes! Uh, Excitement, uh, joy, life. Such a departure. Now, were people after after the last work? Were they just dis- did they say, "Oh, this is lighter"? Did they did they take it in a critical way because it's not the same? It's not the same book. It's it's a very. I think you had to have this book. It would seem to me to go do anything else because you had to. I had to. I had yeah. to.
0: And you know, who? Lo- Beatle fans love it, and people who know my work for the heavy stuff are like oh well okay she had to do a light thing you know it's like no it's really good have you read it it's if, a, well, if, a, if, a, if i had no, so I, I have it and you can't
2: see it because my optics are weird screen. but it says yeah
1: there's a shroud yeah, of mystery over it
2: to jim yeah 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 carol tyler comic-con 2018
0: and it it's was just, wonderful it's supposed to be People read it and they go like they get they get the feeling they get the, ooh, the lift. You know, it's like it is fun. It was written in my 13 year old self from that perspective. It is exciting. It is so different. There's no like angst. Nobody gets uh, nobody dies. <laughs> nobody is in mourning. Nobody's in pain. It's just fun. It made me smile.
2: And and yes. that's and without any kind of conflict, just an easy smile, and that's that's what it is. One thing that I will let's let's talk structurally. It's I'll it's like, my it's my fab lipstick. Did I kiss your book? Yes, you did. Oh, there's your lipstick right there. Yes. All right. So one thing about it is it's structurally. There's, Let's say two-thirds of it is building up to the concert, and then there's the, the, the,
0: the last part is the actual concert. Which is considered, that account is considered by Beatles historians to be a primary account. Therefore, it has a place in the canon of Beatles, Beatlemania history. Well, I, I know that you you
2: thought maybe maybe somebody would call you like Ringo might call you and say, hey, oh, was- <laughs> I
0: wish he would. I wish that Paul, Paul or Ringo or somebody would call. Why don't they call? Why doesn't Paulie Ringo, somebody call me?
1: Do you have to I'm get waiting. any like licensing agreement to to make a comic about them?
0: I did ask Gary about that and he checked. I th- You know, I I put just because I wrote I feel fine as a chapter head that doesn't mean i'm stealing their music is it no 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 and, i think you okay. know i'm I'm drawing their picture based on my like all the little half a lot of the illustrations you can tell the ones i did as a mature person but those guitars and stuff that are in there that i drew and the little stuff on the ad that's all from when i was a kid i i drew i made their life-size guitars and stuff on brown paper
2: with pastels when i was 13 you know so well one one thing i experienced i had with it was i had just just recently like last week i think read dragon hoops by uh, gene lu and yang and it's about basketball and his touring with his high school basketball team and so they're all that same age you know they're they're all young young people and they're going gearing up for the final state game because they know they're going to go to the state championships in Oakland. And, and the last third of the book is the game. And it's, and I had, I was crying in excitement at that. And it was like, I can't believe you told a third of the book being that one thing and how it worked. And then I thought back when I was preparing for this and it's the same thing. We're waiting and you've built it up and then you so deliver in the concert. Mm-hmm. And that was the trick. Because if you didn't, it, the whole thing was going to fall apart. Right. And you, I had to take you with me. Yeah. And you realized that. So I wanted to say that the other thing I wanted to say is let's talk about lettering. I, and I know you just were always a good, you had good penmanship and good lettering, but did you try to do this to look like when you were younger or, or because it's such a part of the visual as much as the art is, especially when you get toward the end, you know, or is this, is this part recreated the, the, the concert in the red in terms of.
0: Well, it, I wrote it in red pen in cursive. in right. the, the original booklet. But the problem was I wrote, I wrote it on the page and then flipped the page over and wrote it on the back. So for technical reasons only, I had to study and practice my 13-year-old girl handwriting (laughs) and do it on separate pages so that it would print, so it was legible. But then throughout the early part of the book where I'm just doing that, one of the things I'm learning from people is a lot of people don't read cursive very well especially the young kids who are not being taught it in school which i think is an ab- is 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 abhorrent because how are they going to read journals and stuff and the, the historical record a lot of it is in script anyway that's my me uh, in 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 french immersion schools they teach
2: cursive from from first grade on Yeah,
0: it, it definitely should be in there it's,
2: and it's it's beautiful to see
0: Um, Um, So anyway, what I did was I thought, okay, the people are going to be reading the cursive account of seeing the Beatles. I need to prepare the reader with the way I lay down the text throughout the, the book. So I started making the lettering. Sometimes it looks like it's a little loopy and it leads, you know, it's got a little in other words i softened the harshness of, of lettering almost like they do with the Neelian fonts that where you you letter but it starts to become cursive so that by the time you get to the reading the cursive i've prepared you with examples throughout the read of the early part of the book i tried to make it easy for people
2: oh yeah no it's 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 great alex What's your favorite Beatles album?
0: What's your favorite
2: Beatles song? Who's your favorite Beatle?
1: Here we go. Well, that's hard. I mean, each one has its own story. Like the White Album is kind of like that. After they kind of made their big splash, but they were kind of going to split. But I kind of like what's going on that. It's a little more somber. Sergeant Pepper's is like this big creative explosion, but.
2: Lightning round, you gotta say, you gotta say one one album song. (laughs)
1: I guess I I like Rubber Soul because they were just about to find a footing. I love Rubber Soul. Yeah, uh, and they were just about to find a footing, but they hadn't quite yet. And uh, I think I like Rubber Soul the most.
2: And favorite Beatle?
1: Um, You know, it used to be Lennon, but I think McCartney probably did most. Of the heavy lifting, so I think later on McCartney became my favorite.
2: Boo, but okay, that's that's fair. I'll do mine because you get to close this with with yours because yours is more important, Carol. But I would say, "While My Guitar Gently Weeps" is my favorite song. Less George, yes. I know. I would. I'm gonna go with the White Album because it's the one I wrote around in my MG medget with my eight track of the White Album. And listen to it singing everything as loud as my voice could go. So I'm going to do it for that purpose, not because of any intellectual thing. And Lennon was gunned down on my dad's birthday. And now it's a day that is both. It's just it it, it marred it forever in, in some respect. So that's that's mine. Yours. Me. I love them
0: all equally like my children. Ah,
1: right. It's hard to pick. It is like, (laughs) it is hard.
0: I I, I will not say I love them all. And I loved all of the music.
2: Right. So you're not
0: going to get an answer from me.
2: I I can see I I was able to bully Alex (laughs) into saying something, but I'm not even going to try with you. And so you took your palate cleanser, you got that and it went to a happy place. What is the project that that you're doing now that you've been alluding to?
0: I am doing a book morning.
2: Ah. Uh, because of all and the yes.
0: It's Oof. taking me into places I thought I would never go into. It's departing from my standard. I'm having a good time. You'd think with morning. Not but, and did
2: you say it was going to be in black and white?
0: Yes, let's see. Yes,
2: oh wow, look at that!
0: Yeah, I am I've got lots of pages here.
2: Fanographics doing it.
0: I guess. Oh, okay. (laughs) I tried my New York agent and she said people were not in the mood for anything about death and mourning. And I thought, COVID? Okay. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. So what it is, is it's a three-part book, but I don't think I'll do it in three parts. It is an exam. I don't know how to talk about it because it's about. Come into terms with the fact that we were talking about the stress. Come into terms with the fact that I've been seriously affected the same way dad was by the war. I have PTSD. I have stress from seeing people drop dead. Being there at their deathbeds, something I didn't experience before. Watching people die, Rose, on our kitchen floor, my mom, my dad, you know, what? my sister, right. this was my circle of people. And not only that, but living people crapped out on me. The people I thought I could depend on crapped out. So I got to the point where there was, again, like I was in that strip with the baby. There was moments here, maybe that terrible year was part of it, where there was nobody I could turn to. My therapist quit. Nobody I could talk to, no place to go, where are you going to run to? So I was here in this space with everything that happened. And then my daughter, who would moved out, was living with this guy I could not stand. A different guy from the one she was with. Anyway, she was with this guy who was from... India and it looked for a while like she was gonna be getting married and living there and I was just like I, I would have nothing left how would I ever access even my child and we were so at odds I didn't even speak to her. And so one night I had a it felt like <laughs> that's why I have the head into at the gallery. I felt like my head split open. It felt like when an iceberg Shears off on one side. I thought, oh, my God, I'm having a stroke. I got up and I was walking through the house. And I started to see that I was in a different world. And I started to see characters. And I started to understand that something was being revealed. I was having like a vision I don't know where it came from. But something happened in my brain. And I entered a different world. And it has never happened to me before. I wasn't afraid. It's just, it was like, I had, poof, I had a big reveal, almost like I'd, I'd been on acid or something. And then this idea of telling the story of, you know, I said, like, oh, okay, I'll just tell the story. It's like, no, I'm not telling the story. I'm not going to tell the story of these people that I loved. I'm not going to tell the story that way, the way you think. I'm coming here. So this place that I my brain entered into I came to figure out after months of asking the people who were revealing themselves to me do you think I'm a kook yet? They said no this is Griefville. Lady you are Grief. This is Griefville. And the guy who was saying it was going, this is Grief i said could you say why don't you just call it grief town wouldn't it be easier to say yeah griefville griefville everybody comes here at one time so then i started to look at grief and mourning and how we don't do it well in this country we don't do it well at all how they do it in the past i started examining my own emotional life in terms of that you know what what What's going on? The whole funerary ick. And then I started to think about the toll. I started to think about the people. And then I went to, you know what? If I'm going to tell their stories about how these people died, I ain't telling it. I'm going to find some griefville citizens to do that job for me. So I've been mining characters. I've been talking, you know, I've been working through these steps. I've been setting things up. I've been getting ready for the end of the book, which I'm not even going to hint at because it's really crazy and wonderful. It's it's it made me feel like now then now you're going to step up and be a storyteller. You watch.
2: I. I just have to say I disagree with your, your agent, for sure, because I can't think of a book we could use more than that right now. I mean, it, it, that's that's what we need to do and to understand it we, while we're doing it.
0: We've come out of COVID. We're not going to be done thinking about what happened.
2: No. And no, that's exciting
0: somehow has it together in terms of death and death rituals no we don't have it in our own mortality
2: Uh,
0: so are we talking a year
2: from now or a i mean in terms of release do you think a year
0: yeah because i mean i think i'm done with the big reveals i got the hunks of the book that i need but you know what i'm having now are clarification thoughts you know like okay I think it's best if you have this be here and this be here and this be here and this. But I had that. And then, like two years ago, I created the map of Griefville, which is this grand scale thing, it fits across a whole wall. It's like, oh, shit, now I can't scan that. I'm going to have to break that down into pages if it's going to fit in a book. Nobody likes my landscape formats. So I'll have to go big. Is it going to be oversized? That means I've changed the scale of my lettering. I mean, there's a lot of technical stuff like that. Do people want to spend, it's going to be expensive book, but it's like, it's going to be this gigantic, awesome thing. I mean, as I've shown a couple of people just like, am I crazy? Is this on gear? And they're like, no, 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 I like this. (laughs) This is very exciting.
2: Because I I have not read about the, like, I feel like we are ahead of the game on this. this. I've
0: been talking about it. See, here's my house. Two pages. Here's one side. And here's the other side. And I explained this whole thing because not too long after this, a man comes and, I'll just tell you. So this whole, this whole story, this whole thing is, I, I went to black and white because, you know, life and death. And I also went to yeah, black right. and white because we'll talk about 2030 if it's in color. <laughs> it takes forever. So if I just do the black and white, maybe I can, you know, snap through it real quick. But I'll tell you what, I'm learning more about, black and white I love black and white. I love working in black and white. I love what black and white is telling me again about marks and how to make marks and how to do things, you know, the way, the way I uh, failed maybe to complete the last time. So I'm, I'm really trying to get, like, be a pen girl. Come on. Be a brush girl. Just go black and white. Do it. And I'm enjoying that. Well,
2: Alex... As as a divorce lawyer, if it's it's time to go, or I'll be getting a divorce.
0: Oh, get get done with that already. We could go on for hours, but we're not going to. Oh, here know, we go. So it, the title of the book is?
1: The Ephemerata.
0: Oh. The Ephemerata.
1: I am so
2: excited about this.
0: I think it'll be fun. Especially when I've come up with a great hook for the ending. people are
1: going to love it. Oh, that's awesome. That's cool. They're going to love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: They're going to love it. Keep them people happy. <laughs> All right.
1: Well, obviously, this can go on for hours more. but And we are going to keep uh, an eye on, on your future projects. And Carol Tyler, thanks so much for joining uh, Jim and I today on the Comic Book Historians podcast. It was a truly esteemed pleasure. I'm so glad we could go through the line of your life and your career. And you're very emotionally open and willing to discuss so much. Jim and I may travel there and visit. And if there are no horses, I can ride on Jim's back.
0: We got horses. There's cows, snakes, skunks. Oh, cool. Love it there. Yeah, nice. But you can
2: ride me, Alex, anytime. You're
1: We're not good. happy. Okay, good. Thank, I'm going to get that sound bite. I'm going to use that <laughs> later. All right. You guys well,
0: are great. This has well, been so much fun. Oh, awesome. Oh, thank, thank you, you. so it was,
1: much. It was fun for us, too. I'm grateful for your time. I know Jim is as well. Thank you again.
0: So long.